It's Tuesday, January 17th. It's scary enough a politician could advocate violence. This one allegedly pulled the trigger. We start here. New Mexico police say they've caught the man behind shootings at Democratic lawmakers' homes. He had complaints about his election. He felt it was rigged. By an election denier turning violent as concerning law enforcement across the country. What happens when a flight crashes in some of the most rugged terrain on Earth? The crash site in this gorge, it's very narrow and it's very deep. We'll take it to Nepal, where residents say this has become distressingly familiar. And if Elon Musk tried to sell you a car right now, would you buy one from him? You have him very publicly and very apparently distracted by Twitter. As the CEO of Tesla goes on trial, some investors are worried he's a distracted driver. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. In the days after January 6th, the biggest fear wasn't that the Capitol would once again be attacked. There was plenty of security there. No, the fear was for other state houses around the country. If political violence was being normalized, what was to stop people from attacking their local lawmakers, who would often have fewer defenses at their disposal? If there was any saving grace at the Capitol, it's that insurrectionists weren't firing guns. What if the next targets weren't that lucky? First and foremost, I want to uh, assure uh, all of our uh, elected officials in uh, the Albuquerque metro area that uh, we do take this seriously. Well, recently in New Mexico, the homes and offices of several local lawmakers have been hit by gunfire. All these lawmakers have been Democrats, but other than that, there weren't a lot of threads pulling this together, and it was unclear who the culprit was. APD essentially discovered what we had all feared and what we had suspected. Yesterday, though, police announced they had made an arrest. Their suspect is a Republican political candidate. ABC's Alex Stone was reporting on this when this shocking press announcement came down last night. Alex, what do we know? Yeah, Brad, so in the Albuquerque area, somebody for just a little over a month has been targeting the homes of Democratic elected leaders. The shooting started in December targeting Adrian Barboa, Debbie O'Malley, State Senator Linda Lopez, Mo Maestas, and now Raul Torres. It goes back to December 4th. Eight shots were fired at the home of a county commissioner. Straight all the way through my house, through my living room, out my back window. It's very disturbing. Then December 11th, 12 shots hit another county commissioner's home. Both my husband and I were, you know, just sat up because of this noise. We, It felt like somebody was using their fist to pound on our door. Then there was a state rep that had his home shot at. They don't really know when. They found that, uh, that there were bullets that hit the building later on. And then on January 3rd, bullets hit a fourth state representative's home. You know, as a, as a mom, it's just it's something that you never want to experience. Three bullets went through her daughter's bedroom. Her young daughter was sleeping in that room, was uninjured. Initially, um, I thought maybe they were fireworks. There have been other shootings that they've looked at, at offices of state Democratic leaders at other homes that they haven't all put together. But the common denominator in all of this has been they have been the homes of Democratic leaders in New Mexico. We are worried and concerned that these are connected. The mayor of Albuquerque had said this seems politically motivated, but they didn't know. We have just learned APD has arrested a former candidate for the New Mexico House who ran just last year. And then last night, this bombshell announcement Albuquerque police saying the shootings were ordered and paid for by 39-year-old Solomon Pena. 
Solomon Pena reached out and contracted someone uh, for a, a, a amount of cash money to commit at least two of these shootings. The addresses of these shootings were communicated over a phone. Within hours in one case, the shooting took place at the lawmaker's home. Pena is a Republican. Pena served about seven years in prison back in 08 for stealing stuff in smash and grab burglaries and robberies. He ran for a state house during the midterms. He lost. He has claimed he didn't lose. He was all rigged against him. One of his complaints, and Mr. Pena had visited at least three commissioners, I think, and Senator Lopez back in November after the election. Uh, he had complaints about his election. He felt it was rigged. He did lose by about 3,600 votes, and police say he then went, hired four men to shoot at the homes of Democratic leaders in New Mexico. And by the way, Brad, police don't even know if those men knew who they were targeting. This type of radicalism is a threat to our nation, and it has made its way to our doorstep right here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And they say it was all done by the order of Solomon Pena. And you mentioned he lost by like 3,600 votes. That's also like he lost by 50 points. Like this election in November wasn't closed. But how, how did they know it was? How did they end up making an arrest? Do we know? Up until now, they didn't have a lot. They had shell casings, but they weren't leading anywhere. And then there was the final shooting where the suspect got away. And police believe actually Pena had gone, ridden along essentially to that shooting. Uh, on the last shooting, we now have evidence too that Pena himself went on this shooting and actually pulled the trigger on at least one of the firearms that was used. And as that driver was leaving, Pena was not in the car, but just by chance that driver was pulled over. During that search, two firearms were recovered and at least one of them has been a direct match to the shooting that had just taken place. Then it began the, the police work of matching those guns to bullet casings that they had received. And then they realized that this was a bigger case and it began to unravel from there. That led to Pena. Um, the evidence that we have is not only firearm, but it's also from cell phones and electronic records, surveillance video and uh, multiple witnesses inside and outside of this conspiracy that have helped us weave together uh, what occurred. The SWAT team pulled him out yesterday. They made announcements for him to leave his house. He came out dressed in, in dark clothing, but just regular street clothing. But the one picture that police put up showed him in the, the MAGA gear with the, the Trump flags behind him. And, and police said that that is their guy. So if this is indeed how it all went down, Alex... Is this like the nightmare scenario? Because like we thought the nightmare scenario was a politician openly endorsing violence against political rivals. This goes a step beyond that because this is allegedly a politician partaking in violence against political rivals. Absolutely. Police will tell you when it comes to political violence that really nothing surprises him anymore after January 6th. But the big concern has been that a lone wolf would be motivated to go out and do something and police nationwide. They, they have tried to track down those who have been in some form radicalized. So all of this comes into play. At the end of the day, this was about a right-wing radical, an election denier who was arrested today. You had this candidate with a criminal history who apparently had the motivation to, according to police, go out and, and carry out a crime like this. And they say he was doing it for the last uh, month and some odd weeks that and, uh, even on one of those going out himself and allegedly pulling the trigger on the others, allowing somebody else to do his dirty work. But, uh, but they say he was behind it. 
Unbelievable. All right, Alex Stone, thank you so much. You got it. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, it's home to some of the deadliest places on Earth, but the airplane is not supposed to be one of them. We'll take you to Nepal after the break. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. With daylight saving time upon us, we're looking forward to more daylight and longer days from March through November. And while setting our clocks forward gives us the illusion of more time, it doesn't necessarily help businesses find qualified candidates any sooner. Fear not, there is a solution. ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is your 24-7 hiring partner working tirelessly to connect you with the right candidate. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, it gets distributed to over 100 job sites, ensuring you reach a diverse pool of qualified individuals. Their smart technology scans thousands of resumes, matching you with people whose skills perfectly align with your job requirements. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free, ZipRecruiter.com slash start here. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash start here. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. When you think of Nepal, you immediately think of the Himalayas, the highest, most rugged terrain in the world in a nation that's tucked between India and China. Top of the world, Mount Everest. We made it. This week, though, the eyes of the world are on Nepal, not because of an Everest ascent, but because of a deadly plane crash, one of several that has taken place in recent years in this country. And that rugged terrain, well, that's posed challenges all its own. Let's take you straight to ABC's foreign correspondent, Britt Clement, who has made her way to Kathmandu this morning. Britt, can you just describe this airliner crash and where it took place? Well, Brad, just to give you an idea, I'm in Kathmandu, which is about 80 miles from Pokhara, where the crash happened. Now, Pokhara is known as a kind of haven for tourists. It's a gateway to the Himalayas, which is why there were 15 foreigners on board this plane. The flight was about 25 minutes. It's kind of a shuttle from Kathmandu to Pokhara, but it crashed less than a mile before landing in Pokhara. This was a twin-engine turboprop aircraft, and it was operated by Nepal's Yeti Airlines. And it, it took off, for, as I say, from Kathmandu for this short-hour flight, but obviously did not make it one minute from landing. The plane banks sharply to the left before exploding. 
and an airport spokesman said the pilot actually requested to change runways before the crash, and it was granted. Uh, but what we're expecting is the bodies of the victims to be sent here to Kathmandu, including, as I say, those 15 foreign nationals who were on board. There will likely to be some kind of vigil at the crematorium uh, with their grieving families, Brad. And do we know what caused it? You said that they, they requested a change of runways. I mean, do we know what was going on on board? Well, I mean, weather conditions can be a problem in this region. Uh, however, it was a blue sky day. It was clear. The hope is, though, that these box black boxes that have now been found could offer clues as to what caused this you know, horrific accident. Right now, though, there are more questions than answers. And, you know, an expert we spoke to today said that it's inconclusive. Everything is inconclusive. Flying can be very demanding there because of weather conditions and winds and things of this nature. So we've got a lot to evaluate. And we know the plane was about 15 years old. As I say, weather conditions were fine. So at this stage, it's still a mystery. Uh, but that local official also telling us that the search operation is extremely hard. The crash site in this gorge, it's very narrow and it's very deep. And it's a real challenge for search and rescue teams who are even using oxygen to operate there. Mm. And unfortunately, officials now tell us this is a mission to recover the bodies and that everyone on board that flight has died. Wow. Um, you've actually reported that we've seen like this is not the first recent crash that this country has actually had several airliner crashes going back several years now. Is there a reason for that? Are there broader concerns here for this country and, and this industry? Yeah, Brad, I, I think there's a strong sense of frustration here and you hear that uh, from people. You know, why are there so many crashes here? It's it's not only heartbreaking for families and the nation, but also, you know, damages the country's reputation and hurts the economy, mm. which relies so much on tourism. Not only is Nepal a very treacherous place, a dangerous place to fly, but the Nepalese government has resisted efforts to bring their safety standards up to modern European or U.S. standards. Of They've course, this is tricky terrain for pilots, but a number of experts we've spoken to said that there are systemic issues at play here, that there needs to be a complete overhaul of the regulatory system. There must be a clear separation between uh, regulatory authority and service provider and airport operator in Nepal. The no. former head of Nepal's aviation body today, he, he told us that there needs to be an improvement on almost every level. More regulation, more manpower, more resources. So as I say, a lot of frustration here and a lot of anger on the ground, especially when you sit, start to see those mourning families who are asking why again. Right. One, of course, is too many. And then the fear that comes along with thinking that there might be a pattern here, especially when it's so, so difficult for help to arrive when something does go wrong. Uh, Brick Clenet, there in Kathmandu. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. You remember last year when Elon Musk made the extraordinary decision to take a public company private to essentially buy out shareholders of Twitter and run the thing himself. Well, this actually wasn't the first time he had floated an idea like this. He suggested he was going to try this with the company Tesla back in 2018, the company he had, of course, taken public years prior, but that never came to fruition. Tesla is still a publicly traded company today. And that is why later today, Elon Musk will be in a federal courtroom facing a civil class action trial alleging securities fraud. All of this continues to point at a fundamental question. If a huge part of the economy will be fueled by electric cars, is Elon Musk the guy you want driving you there? ABC's Max Zahn covers business and technology. Max, first of all, can you just explain why is Elon Musk on trial today? 
Yeah, so we've got a big moment today for Elon Musk, and it goes back to something that happened in 2018. I, I use my tweets to express myself. <laughs> Some oh people use God. their hair. I use Twitter. Elon Musk, of all things, put out a tweet. You, you never expect that from Elon Musk. He said that he wanted to take Tesla private and that he'd secured funding at a really nice price, like $420 a share, which would have come out to about a $70 billion deal to take that company private. And it took the stock soaring. Musk had tweeted he had lined up the financing to pay for a $72 billion buyout of the electric vehicle company. He then tweeted again that made the deal seem imminent, only it wasn't. And now we have shareholders who've come out and said, well, where'd that deal go? The deal never happened. We saw stock volatility as a result of that announcement and then in the ensuing weeks and months, it never coming to fruition. The whole thing led to a $40 million settlement with the SEC that also required Musk to step down as CEO. And so now that we have shareholders saying, we want to recoup that money that we've lost, that this deal never happened and that it seems like you manipulated the price of this stock. No, I, 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 want to, I want to be clear, I do not respect the SEC. I do not respect them. What's happening today is jury selection in that trial that's finally come up. And it's coming up at a really interesting moment for Musk, where we have shareholders upset at him for a very different reason, but nonetheless the trial taking place over what happened a few years ago. Yeah, and Musk has already said this was on the level that he had funding at the time. A judge has already declared his statements were false at the time, though. But Max, like you said, it, it's ironic that this statement was originally made on Twitter. Now he's the boss of Twitter and the value of the company where he really makes money, like Tesla and SpaceX are clearly where he makes the bulk of his money. Tesla's stock has plummeted. Like I'm looking at since April of last year when he made the Twitter offer, it's gone down like more than 50%. What is going on with Tesla? Yeah, so these are tough times for Tesla and it's hard to say exactly how much of it has to do with the distraction that Elon Musk clearly does have at Twitter, though it's quite possibly related. You have an electric vehicle market that's gotten really crowded. When Tesla first got into the business, it was one of the first movers. They were a dominant company in the space and they were selling cars like crazy and they were able to set the price of that car at a pretty high price point because there wasn't competition that was undercutting their car. Well, now we've got a ton of major car companies, some of the big ones, some of the classic Detroit automakers, you have Ford, you have General Motors, others that have gotten into making and selling electric vehicles. So now Tesla is facing that competition from these companies and they've struggled as a result. Tesla's sales rose 35% in the July-September period compared to the second quarter, but the delivery numbers still fell far short of estimates. As a result, they've tried to cut prices they tried to take other steps. Nonetheless, you've seen the stock fall and you've seen investors get pretty upset with what they're seeing from the company. They're some of the trendiest cars on the road, packed with some of the most advanced technology. But Tesla's known worldwide for their autopilot features are at the heart of several deadly crashes. These struggles at Tesla have coincided with very aggressive interest rate hikes at the Federal Reserve. And those interest rate hikes are meant to slow down the economy. And they do so by making it more expensive to borrow. And when you have big ticket items, whether that's a house and a mortgage rate, or that's a car and a car loan, that's gonna cut into the demand for that product because you have people who maybe don't wanna buy one right now. They wanna wait out those interest rate hikes and get a car loan at a more affordable rate. And why not just wait a year, I'll take Uber, I'll take Lyft, I'll find a way to get to work and I'll get that car down the road. And so if I'm Tesla, some of that struggle has nothing to do with Elon Musk. It doesn't even have anything to do with competition and EVs. It's just a tough time to buy a car. If he is distracted, you mentioned distracted maybe by Twitter, if that is an issue, like how much does that affect a company like Tesla? Like these things, self-driving is supposed to be a thing. Absolutely. So you have him 
very publicly and very apparently distracted by Twitter. So tweeting a lot, making very major changes at Twitter in a very short period of time. And meanwhile, the company, at least investors will tell you, needs his attention to make these very careful, very important decisions at an inflection point where they have to decide how they're going to respond to this rising competition. He'll claim, meanwhile, that he's been at all the major Tesla meetings, that he's still heavily involved with the company, and that this notion that he can't handle what's going on at Tesla as he brings Twitter from what he's described as the brink of a financial crisis in its own right for Twitter, he has said that he can do both and that he's been doing both at Tesla and that worry is overstated. Uh, but meanwhile, you have, as you mentioned, that stock price just continuing to plummet and people wondering you know, where he is and if he's asleep at the wheel. Yeah, and, and when Elon Musk bought Twitter, everyone was like, the, the cost to him is negligible compared to his broader fortune. But the issue with Twitter, I think, has made a lot of people like, would you trust this man running your rocket ship? Would you trust him running your car? And if those prices go down, that really has an impact on Elon Musk's influence in the world. Uh, Max Zahn, covering business and tech. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, books have been written about the Italian mafia, but one chapter just came to a close. One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. It wasn't personal. It was strictly business. That's how Italy's top police force described it yesterday as they arrested the most wanted man in Italy and one of the top remaining bosses of the Cosa Nostra. Also. Matteo Messina Denaro had spent the last 30 years on the run. Several times he's been convicted in absentia, linked to dozens of murders. When a mafia insider began spilling secrets in 1993, prosecutors said it was Denaro who had the man's 12-year-old son kidnapped and eventually killed. Like, this was not movie mafia. Authorities describe him as leading a brutal crime syndicate that terrorized a country. When he was caught in Sicily yesterday, locals began applauding the masked police officers who took him down. The prime minister flew in just to congratulate them. And when you hear about the list of this guy's alleged victims, it's even more shocking that he wasn't caught sooner. He's said to have orchestrated the killings of top prosecutors, of bombings, and of the assassination of the brother of Italy's current day president. For years, all authorities had to go on were composite sketches. And yet, until this week, Italian police say they didn't even have a picture of what this guy looked like. Their most recent photo was from 30 years ago, which is why they created a digital rendering of what he might look like now. The break in the case came because in recent years, Denaro had to go to the doctor cops learned through wiretaps he had a specific type of cancer and started combing hospital databases for patients seeking a particular treatment. When they cornered him on the street, he didn't even bother giving the fake name on his ID. He said straight up, he was Messina Denaro, the man whose nickname was Diabolic. 
The question now, though, is, is it too late for this arrest to matter? Italian experts say while this guy did take over as a key leader of the Corleone family, the Cosa Nostra no longer runs the drug trade in Italy. That distinction now belongs to other groups. The most important message here, perhaps, was, while the mafia has a long memory, so do police. Forget how strict the mafia hierarchy is. Like, even though this guy was this top player in this family, he was never going to be the head honcho because apparently the boss of bosses has to be from the city of Palermo in Sicily. See, you always learn something new here. I'm Brad Milky. See you tomorrow.